welcome to Retrofitted. My name is Rebecca Godlove. This episode contains a warning for discussions of violence, sexual assault, and incest. If you made it through part one of this two-part series, please note that this episode is considerably less detailed in its description of said crimes. Our cliffhanger last week left us with a desolate Tamar, whose virginity and hope for marriage had been stolen from her, a self-satisfied Amnon, who was pleased he'd gotten away with his crime seemingly unscathed, and a silently fuming Absalom, who had taken Tamar under his wing and into his home for her own safety. If you also recall, our featured song is I Want It All by Queen, which was inspired by an ambitious young career woman, and which then evolved into a fight song for the oppressed, and which was not sung live by a then very ill Freddie Mercury. Let's open up 2 Samuel chapter 13 and see where Amnon's brutality and Absalom's anger will take them. Two years after the assault on Tamar, Absalom is still planning revenge against a completely oblivious Amnon. It is sheep shearing time, which you may remember from episode one of this season, is typically a time of revelry and celebration, a time when landowners are often feeling especially benevolent and generous to others. Absalom takes advantage of this expectation and claims that he is going to throw a huge feast. He asks his father, King David, and all of David's royal sons to come to his home and dine with him. David demurs, insisting that he and his whole gaggle of servants would be just too much of a crowd for Absalom. Well, why not just send Amnon then, suggests Absalom, who apparently does not have a gift for subtlety. So after some more haggling with David, uh, the decision is finally reached that David would send all his sons to Absalom's home, but David and his servants declined the invitation. Let's pause here and talk a little bit about King David. In episode one, we discussed his meeting with a man named Nabal and Nabal's wife, Abigail, whose quick thinking not only saved the men of her household from David's wrath, but also put out the flames of David's own hot-headedness and in his gratitude for her wisdom, he makes her his wife. After Nabal's death, of course. As far as the Bible explains, this is actually the least complicated of his marriages. Michal, his first wife, was the daughter of his predecessor, King Saul, and she wound up bitter and barren all of her days. David's experience with Bathsheba is, of course, a whole episode or two in itself, and although the brilliant King Solomon was born of their union, their marriage started in adultery, murder, and deception. Typically not a good way to begin a successful relationship. David's other wives and concubines hardly earn a mention, despite bearing him several sons and daughters. But since the incident with Amnon occurred after David's sinful sexual encounter with Bathsheba, there are some scholars and religious leaders who believe that David did know about Amnon's rape of Tamar, but instead of punishing his son and vindicating his daughter, he turned a blind eye. 
perhaps he saw too much of his own past in his oldest boy and wasn't willing to face that darkness. Other scholars note that there were not the required number of witnesses of the act to actually confirm that Tamar had been raped. It's likely that even though Amnon's servants had heard everything since they had been banished to the other room, he probably kept them quiet. Clearly, he is not above any kind of slimy, backhanded activity to get his own way, so I don't think that's an unreasonable assumption. Maybe David just figured that things would work themselves out? The truth is, we don't know exactly why David never addressed Amnon over this massive issue. But we do know that his inactivity and ignorance, whether feigned or genuine, played a large role in what happened to Amnon during that sheep-shearing day dinner. Absalom's plan had literally no panache, no flair, nothing. To be honest, with as much drama and intrigue that the story of David's dynasty holds, you'd expect something with a little more style. In 2 Samuel 13, verses 28 and 29, he just tells his servants to murder Amnon once he gets drunk, and they do. David's other sons assume that it's some type of uprising or massacre, so they all flee. But the news gets back to David that Absalom has murdered all of his sons. David is distraught. Then get this, Yonadab, the squirrely boys-will-be-boys cousin who helped Amnon come up with the plan to assault Tamar in the first place, tells David, Quote, no, don't believe that all of the king's sons have been killed. It was only Amnon. Absalom has been plotting this ever since Amnon raped his sister Tamar. No, my lord, the king, your sons aren't all dead. It was only Amnon. End quote. This guy is audacious enough to come before the king with this news, knowing full well that Amnon's blood was also on Yonadab's own head for his part in planning Tamar's rape. This guy is straight up sleaze. I, I can't find anywhere in scripture where he has some kind of redemptive arc. So I, I kind of feel like in this narrative, Yonadab is just like one of those nasty throwaway uh, fraternity guy brothers in like a 90s teen drama. And he's only being used to push things further along to their destructive conclusion. As for Absalom, he gets away. David's other sons return home to him, and everyone is understandably upset and in mourning. Absalom stays away with far-off relatives for three years. So it's five years since the rape that started this whole horrific saga, but it's not anywhere close to being over yet. There are a few more key players in this plot, including a semi-professional actress hired by David's own second-in-command, Yoab, in 2 Samuel chapter 14, Joab is tired of seeing David mope around the palace because he misses Absalom so much. So Joab brings in an unnamed woman to essentially tell a fictitious sob story that tricks David into realizing that as the king, he can protect Absalom from the rest of his family's anger. Still, David is not so foolish as to think that Absalom can be fully restored to himself. So Absalom is barred from the presence of the king, although he is welcomed back into Israel. Two years after that, and Absalom is tiring of this treatment. 
He wants to talk to Yoab, so he sends a messenger who is turned away. Absalom then sends word again, and again, Yoab declines to speak. So then, get this, Absalom just sets Yoab's fields on fire to get his attention. Yoab can no longer ignore him, so Absalom convinces him to take him before David the king. Eight years after Tamar's rape, David's oldest son is dead. His daughter's attack has been used as an excuse for murder, and his assassin son is welcomed home via way of burning crops. But that's not the end of Absalom's story. It's not ambitious enough for our featured song, you know, and avenging rape was only the start. Absalom just can't wait to be king. He is snatching up people. In 2 Samuel 15, we learn that this guy has hired a literal entourage to surround him wherever he goes. 50 bodyguards, in fact. He wakes early and parks his gorgeous self down in front of the gates to the city of Jerusalem, smiling and chatting with the locals. He gets all buddy-buddy with the local union reps, kisses babies, flirts with the old ladies, all of it. He is snatching up people before they air their grievances to the king. He's connecting with them, making them feel understood and valued and heard, even without actually doing anything practical for them. Absalom is good. He literally had his brother murdered and he's still got enough chutzpah and charisma to, as 2 Samuel 15, 6 states, steal the hearts of all the people of Israel. As we've already learned about Absalom, he is a man who knows how to wait for the right moment. He waited two years to avenge his sister's rape, three years for his father to welcome him back to Israel, and two more years to actually be able to see King David face to face. He pulls this trustworthy politician act for four more years before he makes his move. After this time, he asks David for permission to return to Hebron, where he had stayed during his temporary exile in order to make a sacrifice. While there, he puts his treasonous plan into motion. He sends his supporters to all the tribes of Israel with the orders to stir up dissent among the people. Then he sends for Ahithophel, one of David's trusted advisors, to come be his own counselor. Now, word gets back to David that his beloved son is enacting a coup against him and that all of Israel is now supporting Absalom's claim to the throne. David and his group hightailed out of Jerusalem, realizing that Absalom is not beyond attacking the city or sacking it to make a statement. David may have been blinded by fatherly affection, but he's not stupid. He sends men loyal to him back to Jerusalem with the intent of convincing Absalom that they have defected and then offering him unwise counsel. Based on the advice of Ahithophel, Absalom then publicly has sex with David's concubines, some of whom had been left behind. This is the ultimate statement of defiance. He's practically spitting in his father's face. To anyone witnessing or hearing about this act, 
it was as if Absalom had literally just crowned himself king. There's a lot more that happens in the following passages, but the Reader's Digest version is that Ahithophel gives Absalom advice that, had it been followed, would have resulted in David's death. However, David's undercover spies suggest different approaches, giving the king additional time to gather up support. When David's and Absalom's forces meet, David instructs Joab, the one who reconciled the two, to treat Absalom with care should he come across him. Joab may have held a grudge against Absalom for burning down his fields because he did not obey the king. In 2 Samuel 18, verses 9 through 17, we hear about the humiliating end of the rebellious Absalom. His long, beautiful hair had gotten tangled up in a tree that he was riding beneath, and the mule under him kept going. When Joab hears of this, he goes and sticks three daggers into Absalom, who is still hanging from the tree, and then has several of his young men finish the job, discarding Absalom's body in a pit and filling it with rocks. David is restored to his throne, but is in deep mourning over his son's death, refusing to go out in public. Joab then performs the Old Testament equivalent of tossing David into a cold shower and tells him in 2 Samuel 19, 5-7, We saved your life today and the lives of your sons, your daughters, and your wives and concubines. Yet you act like this, making us feel ashamed of ourselves. You seem to love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that your commanders and troops mean nothing to you. And it seems that if Absalom had lived and all of us died, you would be pleased. Now go out there and congratulate your troops, for I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a single one of them will remain here tonight. Then you'll be worse off than ever before. Having a preschooler and a kindergartner, I like... I know how Joab felt at that moment. David does end up going before his troops, but that's not the end of his trouble. I don't even have time right now to list the issues with his other sons, another one of whom also tried to take the throne by force, and how Joab finally defected and joined a coup against David, but, well, yeah, it's not good to be the king. The story of David's completely dysfunctional family especially the rivalries he didn't seem to know about, serves as a cautionary tale for so many things. 1 Kings 1 verse 6 says about David's relationship with one of his sons that David never disciplined him not once, not even to ask what he was doing. It's easy to see that the more wives and concubines a man has, the more kids he has, the more potential there is for complete and utter disaster, and the higher the odds are of your offspring trying to off you. It's important to know that the God of the Old Testament did not specifically approve of polygamy, but it's also not explicitly condemned. And most of the families that came from polygamous marriages, including those of Jacob, David, Solomon, suffered great troubles, both physical and emotional. With many wives and many children, it would be nearly impossible for a man not to favor one wife or child more than the others, and that jealousy that ensues can literally rip a family apart. 
please see the story of Joseph in Genesis for further information. Well, this episode really isn't about polygamy exactly. Still, many of Absalom's problems were born out of it. I've heard people remark that God's plan for marriage includes a woman marrying her rapist, which we refuted in last week's episode, and that it also includes men marrying multiple women. Now, provisions were put in place for the equal treatment of multiple wives if a man married more than one, as well as the rights of any children born from this union. I don't believe it was ever God's best or his perfect plan for men to marry multiple wives, or women to marry multiple men for that matter, but there are no cases of that in the Bible. But like natural parents, he knew that his children would go their own way. The laws surrounding marriage were safeguards, like bumper pads for a fledgling bowler, to keep things from completely imploding. Just as a parent may watch from a distance as their child tries to ride a bike without training wheels, Falling is inevitable, but the helmet and knee pads can decrease potential injury. God knew before he created mankind that we would strive to make our own path, that we would be driven by an internal engine screaming towards independence. I truly, truly do feel that the laws and commandments given to ancient Israel, many of which are applied to Christianity today, are not in place to keep us oppressed or living in fear. I believe that, ironic as it seems, boundaries can help us explore our freedom, our goals, and our dreams in a way that can help lessen pain and regret, or even avoid it entirely in some cases. If we look at God's laws not as a way of pinning us down or trapping us in, but of keeping danger and unnecessary risk and sorrow out, then we can be so much more at peace about our decisions and our future. Don't be like Absalom. Don't be like Amnon. And if you're a dad, at least as far as parenting is concerned, don't be like David. In our next episode, we will do a complete 180 and discuss a family that was not only functional and healthy, but also wound up with a pretty sweet bonus branch in their family tree. Thank you for joining me today. If you like the show, please consider leaving a five-star review on whichever platform you use. And I'd love to hear from you. I can be reached at retrofittedpodcast at gmail.com and also my brand new website at retrofittedpodcast.com where you can download and listen to all episodes of the show as well as check out my latest blog posts. Last but not least, if you are considering financially supporting the podcast and its associated endeavors for as little as $3 a month, please visit patreon.com slash Rebecca Godlove. As always... Be wise and be well. Theme song is Synthwave by Ryan Anderson.